Please stand as you're able for the reading of the New Testament lesson from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son. And he named him Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Cynthia, thank you for reading our lesson this morning, and grace and peace to each of you. Uh, it is so good to be in worship with you now, just uh, seven days from the day. Uh, we welcome all of you, especially those who are visiting with us, and to be with Jackson Briscoe's family is a, a marvelous thing. We were discussing before the service that with a name like Jackson Briscoe, he's either going to be in the rodeo or a country music singer. We're not sure which one. But what a beautiful child, and we welcome all of you. And those of you, I want to extend a word of greeting online. Uh, I know that uh, you've already heard that from Jonathan, and we're grateful to Jonathan. But I want to tell you what a privilege it is to be in your homes or wherever you are today to share with you God's Word and to worship with each of you uh, is a great privilege for all of us here who are in person. I also want to say a word of thanks to our chancel choir, orchestra, bells. Uh, we brought out the bells and whistles today, uh, but we've had it the whole season. And last Sunday evening was a remarkable experience uh, to Greg, Ryan, Patsy, James, uh, Paul, all of our musicians. We're so grateful to you, and we look forward uh, to more uh, to come a little bit later. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that, that Christmas has come a little quicker this year. Maybe it's a sign of age, I don't know. But it seems to get here a little sooner. And we've, we've been a little slower at our house this year in putting up Christmas for some reason. Uh, we usually get right to it, at least if you're in Sherry's family, you get right to it right after the day after Thanksgiving. But, but we've been kind of taking our time these days, and, and I th I'm convinced that part of the reason is, is because we have a one-year-old grandson in Georgia, and so I don't see my wife as much as I used to. Uh, she, she's on the road a lot, and so we've been taking our time. But if you were to come to our house today, you would see that central to our decor is the manger scene. And, and we don't have just one. We've got several nativity sets because whenever we travel, wherever we go, uh, we will often bring back some unique depiction of the birth story. So we have a crash from South Africa. We have a crash from Sierra Leone. We have one from Mexico, Germany, uh, Israel, Honduras. And would you believe we even have one from the Smokies? Smoky Mountains, there it is. 
I'm a little embarrassed about it, Jim, but I'm sharing it with you. It, it is a, it's actually a gift from the in-laws. And so uh, we put it up the day before they come and we take it down the day after they leave. And uh, Sherry, are, are they online with us today? They are, okay. This is our favorite nativity set of all. We love it the best, we love it the best. So whenever we get one of these, we, we set it up, it comes complete, as you know, with angels, shepherds, magi, livestock, and the holy family. And while Jesus is always center stage, it's, it's true that Mary usually gets the limelight, which is fitting, followed by shepherds and wise men, angels, and Joseph is there too. Although Joseph gets little press from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet this man plays a pivotal part in the story. Uh, let me introduce Joseph to you. You already know he is a carpenter by trade or perhaps a stonemason. He's venerated by the Catholics as the patron saint of the working class, the blue collar folk. In fact, his name, literally, you know what it means? God will give. His parents named him after the fair-haired son of Jacob in the Old Testament. You find Jacob in the book of Genesis, whose name will be Israel, who was known to be a dreamer. And in fact, in the text that we just read, that Cynthia read for us, it was a dream that changed this man's life and consequently changed ours too. It's interesting to me that when you read the Gospels, the four Gospels, there are six dreams in the Gospels. Three of them are in Matthew 1 and 2. All six of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. Jews and Gentiles alike have always believed that dreams are a means of divine communication. It's the way that God reveals God's self to the world. In fact, as a sight major, I remember that Sigmund Freud once said, dreams reveal our deepest fears and anxieties and our greatest hopes. I read recently a neurological study about dreams that says that often we dream about things that we ignore when we're awake and how true that is. I used to have a recurring dream. Maybe I've shared it with you before. I'm running late for a, a final exam, which I have neglected to study for, and I need an A to pass the class, and I need the class to graduate. I wake up in a cold sweat. I sometimes dream, and this is very confessional, it's 11.15 on Sunday morning, and I wake up from a nap and realize that I haven't prepared a sermon, and you all are here waiting terrible dream, not as bad as the pastor who dreamed he was preaching and woke up and he was. That's a bad dream. That's a really bad dream. They can last a few seconds. They can endure up to 20 or 30 minutes. Sometimes we remember them and sometimes we don't. But this dream is worth remembering. When you think about it, the context of Joseph's dream was actually a nightmare. He had just learned that his fiancée is pregnant and the child in the womb is not his. That's a nightmare. The scripture says they were pledged. The King James says they were betrothed. 
A Jewish betrothal was more binding than our modern day engagement. It usually lasted about a year, but it was prearranged by the families with money exchanged. And so this couple was as good as married, though Matthew is clear that their union had not been consummated. For a betrothed couple to split, a legal divorce was required. In the first century, if the groom died before the marriage, the bride was treated and regarded as a widow. And furthermore, if a man divorced his intended during this betrothal phase, he must refund her dowry by law, except in the case of adultery. Now, I've done hundreds of weddings in my time. Mary, I've done some with you. In 40 years, I estimate four or 500 weddings. And as you all can imagine, I've seen about every conceivable situation that you can think of, but I've never seen anything like this. In fact, I'll tell you right now that if I had been the rabbi at First Methodist Nazareth, I would have counseled them to wait. We need a little come to Jesus meeting and we would have had a prayer meeting. I remember reading about a situation a few years ago in Chicago, the couple had been dating for seven years. They were engaged for three, and everything was ready. It was the week of the wedding, the dress was purchased, tuxes ordered, motels booked, the hall was reserved, the flowers, reception, the rings, it was all done. And four days before the ceremony, the groom got cold feet. He called it off. She didn't take it well. In fact, the article said that she sued him for the cost of the wedding, get ready, $95,942. That old boy's feet are gonna be cold for a long time. But I'll tell you what, that story pales in comparison to what Cynthia just read. You think about it. An arranged marriage, a contract between two families who lived in the same neighborhood, a pact that was made for them when they were babies, and then just before the rehearsal dinner, the bride turns up pregnant with somebody else's baby. That takes the cake, literally. It takes the cake. Now, at this point in Matthew's version of the story, he mentions the character of Joseph. Verse 19, now Joseph was a righteous man. It's an interesting word. I've italicized it for you. The word in Greek is dikaios. It means innocent. In Greek, it means he was holy. He was upright. He was virtuous. He was law-abiding, and he was true to the Torah. Some of you know that in preparation for our Exodus series in the fall, that I spent a long time this summer researching and studying the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's very clear if you read Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20, how you handle such a case as what we read. Let me read it to you. If there's a young woman engaged to be married and a man meets her in the town and lies with her, you shall bring them both to the city gate and stone them to death. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. End of quote. It's in the book. 
There is a name for this kind of justice. You've probably heard it before. It's called an honor killing. It's still practiced in some parts of the world. In fact, I read the other day that as many as 5,000 women will suffer from an honor killing because of speculation about affairs. This happens still today in the Middle East and sometimes in South Asia. It is a rather primitive, archaic way of dealing with our guilt and shame. But it's in the book. And Joseph, being a righteous man, lives by the book, by the letter of the law. And yet, contrary to what you would expect of a righteous man, Joseph does not, in this case, keep the letter of the law. He resolves to divorce her quietly. And herein, you begin to see a different form of righteousness. He's mixing law with grace. He's combining justice with mercy. Now pause it there for just a moment. Fast forward from that point 30 years later, Mary's child is sitting on a hilltop teaching the multitude And he says, and I quote, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wonder where Jesus learned that. In the same sermon, he would say, look, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Where did he learn that? I've not come to keep the letter of the law, but to get to the spirit, the root of the law. Where did he learn that? If you flip to the fourth gospel, there's an interesting story in the eighth chapter of the gospel of John. The scribes and Pharisees brought this woman to the temple who was caught in an illicit affair. I'm not sure why they didn't bring the man. It seems to me there may be a double standard here based on what we just read. But they bring this woman, place her before Jesus with this question. Jesus, we caught this woman red-handed in the act of adultery and the law says, stoner, what do you say? Now, if you don't know, that's a trick question. Preachers and theologians do it all the time. We're looking for one particular answer so that we can demonize the person if they don't say what we want to hear. It's a trap. It's a catch-22 for Jesus because if Jesus says, hey, let her go, then they're gonna nail him for breaking the law. And if he says stone her, he's a hypocrite because all that grace and mercy preaching just went out the window. Either way, this rabbi is doomed. So John says, watch this, this is really interesting. Jesus bends down and writes something with his finger in the dirt. And they went right on badgering, impressing, Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus looks up and says, I tell you what, let's do. Whoever among you is without sin, we're gonna let you throw the first stone. And John says again, he bends down and he's writing something in the dirt. What's he writing, for heaven's sake? If that's me, it's my way of buying time. I'm trying to think about how, not Jesus. There are some who say when Jesus was writing in the dirt, what he's doing was writing the names of the accusers 
with their sin. And all of a sudden, these accusers remember that they have, they have other appointments and they leave Jesus and the woman alone. Woman, says Jesus, where are your critics? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. The only one in that crowd without sin never picked up a rock. And I wonder where did he learn it? I think I know. I think he learned it from the wood shop, from a man with a toolbox. Joseph, he could have canceled the wedding and had a double funeral the same day. And I can assure you that the elders at the temple would have come around and patted him on the back and said, you did what you had to do, Joe. You did the right thing. But this is not your average Joe. His righteousness comes with mercy. And unwilling to put her to shame, he resolves to divorce her quietly. And then there's, there's this dream. An angel of God appears to him, Joseph, son of David. You don't need to be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to name him Jesus, or he will save his people from their sins. Did you know that in the first century that the task of naming the child is absolutely critical? Whoever names the child claims the child. So here's a man, a righteous man, who not only takes Mary to be his wife, he adopts her son and he gives him all the rights and privileges that come with his name. He gives him his lineage. He gives him his history. He gives him his ancestry. And if you read the section right before what we read in the genealogical section of Matthew with which the gospel begins, you will see that Joseph's roots, his family history, goes all the way back to Abraham, right through King David, a man after God's own heart. Subsequently, Jesus has a last name. Did you know that? Do you know what Jesus' last name is? Davidson, son of David. Isn't it wonderful in Nashville to every day see on the back of a license plate, Davidson County, and to be reminded of this story and that those of us who live in Nashville know what happened, what really happened in Nazareth. Jesus, David's son. That's not just a name. That's a title. That's a messianic title. And by the way, the angel said, you can also call him this, Emmanuel. It means God is with us. So, it turns out that Joe's vision wasn't a nightmare at all. It was a revelation. Even with cold feet, 
This righteous man had a merciful heart and at the risk of shaming himself and his own reputation, when he woke up, he did exactly what the angel commanded and we don't remember a thing he said, but we remember what he did. This is not your average Joe. We had unexpected news this week. One of our flock died last Sunday night. Most of you know her, Jackie Postel. If you don't know her, you know of her. I can tell you it came as quite a shock when we got the call. She apparently had the flu on top of a weak heart. She was nearly always the last person to leave the building after worship. She would usually hang around with a bag of newspapers to give me a new book or a newspaper with highlighted articles that I needed to read. Sometimes she would make sermon notes during the message and then bring them to me to help improve my preaching. <laughs> she often told me that her job, her task was to pester the pastor and she was proficient. She was to be the scripture reader next Sunday, Christmas day, Luke two, but she'll be spending her first Christmas with the one that we're celebrating. And I can tell you, she is likely giving instructions to Simon Peter, even as we speak. I was thinking about her this week, and I, I, in my devotional time, I, I wrote a little something about her, and I debated whether or not to share it today. But I, I think it's appropriate to the theme, <clears throat> because Jackie Postel was a blessing to us in unexpected ways. I, I don't often close a sermon by quoting myself. <laughs> but I wanna share with you what I read, what I wrote. It is surprising how the death of one who was often perceived as a bother affects the church. She was rather needy. She was nothing if not persistent. And I think if she had been allowed to, she would have moved in and lived at the church. Sometimes folk would go out of their way to go around her, but she was always here. She was ever present for me, for the church, for God, for worship. And she was always doing her best to help, to just participate, to contribute, to be a part of us. And yet she was alone. She often lamented and cried about her loneliness. And, and I knew there wasn't much I could do about it except to listen and to say, I know, Jackie, I know, though I really didn't. She showed up unexpectedly at our family funerals. Whenever and wherever they happened, she came to our son's graduation from seminary, drove all the way from Nashville to Atlanta. She's in the family pictures. In fact, my own mother mothered her as if she were her adopted child. Always there. Whether we invited her or not, she couldn't stay away. And I think now it was her way of saying, I need family and y'all are it. She went away on a Sunday alone, though I don't believe for one second that she was ever really alone. Emmanuel means never alone. But it's peculiar 
how the death of one often avoided can break your heart. And this morning, I don't know why, but the church feels a little lonely without her. We'll miss her, we loved her, and I really think she knew it. And I'm comforted today on the fourth Sunday of Advent because we have lit, the acolytes have lit the love candle, which is a reminder today that Jackie Postel is surrounded by family, some of whom are likely hiding. But there's one thing I know, she'll never be alone. And neither will you, and neither will I. Unexpected blessings are everywhere. They're all around you. God help us to see them and to be them for love's sake. Because when you do, you're going to hear an angel's song and you're going to fulfill the scripture and God will be born in you in the most unexpected ways. May it be so.